and welcome to How to Grow a Pod, the podcast about podcasting from the book How to Start and Grow a Successful Podcast by me, Julie Smith. This is where you'll find the almost unedited interviews by the pioneers of podcasting, the hobbyists and the pros who feature in the book. And this week I'm with the matriarch of British podcasting, Helen Zaltzman, who's Answer Me This, Veronica Mars Investigates and The Illusionist Podcasts set the standard in homegrown talent. As she talks about community support, making money in podcasting, and where she thinks the medium is heading, she laughed at the moniker of matriarch. Uh, what does it mean? <laughs> well, it means that you set up the, the podcast support group. Uh, that is the place where people can pop in at any time and always get support. Tell me about that. Why did you do it and what do you get out of it? Uh, well, in... Early 2014, I became aware of an organisation that was charging people for meetups. So, because I think podcasting, it hadn't boomed yet, that was about to happen, but it was gathering speed a little bit. And so people wanted to learn how to do it. There still weren't masses of resources out there. But I thought charging people to meet other people that don't, that are just there to also learn seems like really against the spirit of what I think it should be, particularly when you're a beginner, because most people are not making money at the start of a podcast and may never do so. And and, and therefore, I think there are so many barriers to entry to doing a creative thing. I always wanted to remove as many of those as possible. And one of those is financial or the feeling that there's a lot of information you don't have access to. There's actually not that much you need to know. And I know that because I didn't know much when I started and uh, there wasn't much guidance around. So we had to figure it out ourselves. So when I heard people were charging for this, I thought, well, fuck that. I'm going to do it for free. Um, people were always asking me for podcasting advice anyway. So I was like, OK, I'm going to be in this cafe at this time. If you have questions, then just come and talk to me. I brought a friend who at the time was a Radio 4 producer as well. And so that was the beginning and then we had another meetup. Uh, Roman Mars was in town, so um, that was quite a busy meetup. And the best thing about it, although he did give some really good advice, um, was just like seeing people meet each other and spark off each other. And some of them started working together, and that was really wholesome. So the group started just as a way of people finding out about the London meetups, essentially. But then it grew to be its own thing. It grew slowly, and then a couple of years ago very, very quickly. Um, I mean, this is extraordinary. It is a fantastic resource. You literally can write anything in there. You know, you can ask about artwork. You can ask about, uh, you know, any little tips for anything. I mean, I'm constantly popping in there and finding answers to stuff. It can be very techy and very nerdy and very broad ranging and very sort of existential. Content. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is boring. Uh, <laughs> um, but sometimes... You think, wow, I, I'm really glad someone voiced that thought that was on their mind and that I got to see it. Um, and I got to see other people thinking about that thought and contributing their own. Um, I think the trouble is any online community that is more than, say, a few hundred people can get quite toxic quite quickly. And it's a constant battle just to keep it up boring rather than unpleasant. Yes, and you're constantly on it, aren't you? You have a team of admins who are yes. constantly reminding us all to behave ourselves. And but uh, only for the last couple of years. I mean, before that, I was trying to do it all myself. I think my husband, Martin, was helping as well, but that was it. And um, it was uh, rough. <laughs> yeah. 
I bet. But 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 the most important thing is that, you know, it does give the spirit of podcasting. You can pop in there. You can feel that it's very uh, helpful. It's very celebratory. It's um, it's not about making money. There's not a great deal of questions about how do we make money out of this? I mean, the Americans always do when they, they wake up in the afternoon. Mm. The afternoon sessions are hilarious to, to compare with the, <laughs> the nice little nerdy Brits. Um, but it's not about being a huge success. It's not about being a, a superstar. It feels a very fond celebration of what podcasting seems to be. Do you still think that that's what it is? Uh, I mean, to me, I don't see the celebratory stuff. I see the back end, which is the absolute worst version of it. <laughs> the stuff that doesn't even go in. Um, I think it's fine to enter podcasting with ambition, but the ambition primarily should be to make a good show. Um you know, a show that is the best version of itself and is doing something for the listener. And if you do that, then there's the possibility of making money as well. But if you're like, I want to make money, what's the quickest way to do this? This is the wrong thing for you. Or the people who are like, I want to add people to my mailing list. I just think that's an incredibly labour-intensive way to achieve that aim. Yeah, I think, I mean, with podcasting, so I used to do a lot of kind of workshops as well. And um, I just wanted to let people know that it is going to be harder than they think. Even if they do a podcast that is quite an easy lift production-wise, it's still a lot of time to do the very easiest kind of podcast. And if you have any kind of ambition towards something like, say, fiction is... You, you can't just, you know, knock that out in an afternoon. Or if you want to make a documentary, the same. So I was trying to prepare for people... I was trying to prepare people for it not being fun... Because if they then find it's not fun, they know that it's not their fault. But the ones who are like, I feel like it's not fun and that must be my failure, then they stop and that's, that's not necessary. Like for me, it's never really been fun. The, <laughs> the, the ha- having done a podcast is fun and the things that have come about because of the podcast is fun, but actually making podcasts is not hugely fun for me. Really? I'm and that's fine. Very yeah, it's too much like a job that. to be a hobby. Yeah. What bit it's is fun being it? on other people's things? Now you're the editor. Ollie said that he's never ever yeah. touched any buttons in his life. Yeah, um, you are the the crafter. Do you not enjoy that process? Um, I think it's a very underrated creative process for sure, and I I get really pissed off as well when people um, are in my group or other Facebook groups and they're like, editing is dishonesty, and and no, it's not. Um, every other form of media or art has some editing in it whether beforehand or afterhand you know you look at a painting not every thought the painter has had is in that painting some of them have been removed or painted over um every film every journalistic article there is some form of reduction in content so why do people think that podcasts should just be like free reign of all the bloody blah coming out of your mouth but also it's just it's clarifying a truth for me um and I was a book editor before I was a podcast. I was freelance. I wasn't like high level and I was mostly proofreading and doing indexes, which is a very boring job. Um, the indexing, <laughs> you'd think a machine does it, but it's humans. Um, but sometimes, so there was an editor through whom I got a lot of the proofreading and indexing jobs who would be doing the editing and then he would suddenly disappear on the job and I would have to pick it up and do it. <laughs> and that was how I ended up <laughs> editing books. And I liked the feeling... I like the feeling of having a finite amount of material and just having to make it the best version of itself. So I found that easier than actually creating the material. 
And then when it came to podcasting, I felt that same principle applied. Mm. Although it's still a learning process. I've spent much of the 13 and a half years uh, just past editing and it's still, you know, a constant um, uh, educational thing to be doing that's a really interesting analogy actually because of course I feel that too I love that process and I'm right at that process now with this book that I have a mass I've had 50,000 words I need to (laughs) kind of you know find some shape that's a short book for me I normally do 80,000 words but I love that process it's like a jigsaw puzzle and it's about putting it is like a jigsaw puzzle but the pieces are not cut. Well, exactly. Yep. And you have to kind of put them all into place. And it is the same with podcasting. I mean, I'm, as a journalist, I, I, I plan ahead. I know what I'm going to uh, get. And I'm now quite good at getting it in real time. So there's very little mm. to actually get down to. Um, Ollie told me that actually you over-record for Answer Me This mm. and yes. you massively over-record, so three hours for an hour show. No, it's not three hours, no. Um, two hours is maximum. Okay. Um, and also that will offer, it, it's usually 90 minutes and that'll be cut to 50 and we might save a bit over for a future show. Yeah. Um, uh, but um, it's, it allows freedom during the recording to do things that might not work. Yes, and, I, and yours is an entertainment show. Mine's much more sort of just a straight interview show. So, yeah. um, it, but, but The Illusionist, I'll record for one to three hours and use 15 to 20 minutes. Yes, exactly. But you know what you're doing now. So when you're actually recording, I'm just thinking of how to pass this on as information to mm. people who want to do it. If you are doing mm. anything sort of you know, non-fiction. It is about sort of having that sense of editing as you're going along, having planning in, in advance, knowing when things are not going to be working even as you're doing it and thinking of the edit in as you're recording. Mm. Um, who was telling me that? Um, the My Dad Wrote a Porno team. Um, Alice was mm. saying she she sees Jamie's eyes glaze over and, and knows that that bit's going to be cut. Um, mm. I mean, how much of that happens with you? Uh, it really varies which of my shows I'm working on. So often with The Illusionist, I'll go in not having prepared too much. I mean, enough that an interviewee feels respected because they're giving me their time for free. But um, I want them to feel comfortable and talk freely. And often I'll have a general idea of what I want. But then afterwards, I'll be like, it's this specific thing they said. And that is the real crux of things. So by letting them talk freely and then narrowing it down... I feel like I'm giving them a better experience, but also um, I know there are some people that go in with exactly what they want and then they basically wear the interviewee down until they say it. So they'll get them to say the same story multiple times. It'll be hours or days. And I know, and it works for them, but it's not my process at all. Partly because it feels like a bit of an ordeal for the interviewee, (laughs) which I don't want them to go through given that they're lending me their time for no reason other than generosity. Um, but also I feel like whatever they have to say is more interesting than whatever preconceived idea I have of what they could say. So I would rather get a lot of options from them and figure it out afterwards. Um, yes, what was the question? The question is about whether you're planning, yeah. where you're actually knowing at the time of recording where you see something mm. that doesn't work and you're thinking at that time, that's yeah. going to go. Honestly, I'm doing that when people are just chatting to me. I'm like, this anecdote probably could have been a little more economical. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't know how uh, much I can disguise my facial expressions during those moments. (laughs) We are all editors. I really want to talk to you, though, Helen, about where podcasting is going. 
Mm. Um, you know, you've you've been there at the beginning of British podcasting. You've seen how it's developed. Uh, how do you feel about the big guys coming in, the brands? That we, I've talked to a lot of people who, who you know, who are advertising people. Uh, I've talked to marketeers. Mm. I've talked to all sorts of things. People who have, have changed the face of podcasting. Where, how do you feel about that? And where do you think it's going? Um, well, so I don't think I was first in British podcasting, really. We started in 2007 and the Ricky Gervais Guardian podcast was 2005. So that set the scene for podcasts really being an enormous name with a big brand behind it. Um, but So when we started, we were like, well, this is never going to work out for us, just two nobodies in a living room. Um so it's interesting that it has kind of come back to that. I, I felt, I feel like British podcasting is a few years behind the US at all times, In partly because our radio is stronger, so more people listen to it um, and make it. You can make more of a career for yourself in radio here than in the US at the time that podcasting became big, which is why they were like, oh, screw it, I'm just going to make a podcast. Um, I think it's also partly the entrepreneurial spirit of America where they're like, I'm going to do a thing. Uh, whereas I think in Britain, we're like, well, I'm not going to work unless you make me. <laughs> um, so I think there's a lot of things at play that are cultural, but also uh, structural. Um, I think a big difference in podcasting the last few years has been um, there's a lot more competition for people's ear time now. And I think that is because of the daily news podcast. So when the daily started and a lot of shows started in the wake of the Trump election, it suddenly meant that people's ears were like committed for their commute every day with just one show rather than like five different shows a week or or thereabouts. And if they listen to more than one, then it's like, oh, OK, we have no chance, really. Um, so I think that was a major shift. News, I think before that, people like considered podcasts to be quite unattached to the time in which they were made. And for, in most cases, you know, part of the appeal was that the archive would work in the present as well. So that was a shift artistically, but I think just in listener behaviour and in what companies were interested in financing. And then in the last couple of years, you've seen a lot of entrants from big pre-existing media organisations and people thereof, like Conan O'Brien has a successful podcast. It, it's not always the case that if you just think up a podcast and get a celebrity to front it, that it will work out. But... Um, I think a lot of celebrity-fronted ones now have been dominating the market. And maybe it's good in that it will get people in who were not listening to podcasts before. Or they were like, I've never heard of it, but then this major TV channel is doing them, so maybe that's something I can comprehend. But again, it, it makes it harder for people like me, who are nobodies in a living room, to reach people's ears because it's harder just to find people and, and get in their eyeline so that they then are like, okay, I'll try that. Well, possibly not you and Ollie, because it actually you were, I mean, Ricky Gervais was brought in to front a podcast and that's different to Ricky Gervais wanting to do a podcast. It was The Guardian saying, let's do it. Uh, and you and Ollie kind of went, mm, that's interesting. Let's do that yeah. too. No, so, one, no one was going to ask us. Well, exactly. Like, why would you? Exactly. So um, that entrepreneurial think, spirit that you talk about came from you. It wasn't Ricky Gervais. I think that came from Ollie because I'm very lazy. No, I'm not saying Ricky Gervais was entrepreneurial yeah. at all. So I'm just saying um, that you, I think that you and Ollie, or let, I mean, I know this, Ollie has told us the story of how he kind of got you on board. But, you know, that entrepreneurial, that kind of punky DIY, I can do this. Mm. Let's have a go. Let's bring the kind of the festival spirit, the fringe festival spirit at that, you mm. know, to kind of 
podcasting. Let's if why not? Let's give it a go. And that really did start with you too. Uh, lots of people then came on board, thought, well, we can do that too, because there was nobody else at that time doing it in Britain. I think there were, but Ollie has a very marketing uh, shaped mind, or at least he did back in 2007. So I think that was the crucial difference. There were other people definitely doing it because we were like, oh, look at them. That's cool. Yeah. Um, I didn't listen to podcasts yet at the time, by the way. Yeah. I had not listened to them. Yeah. I didn't have an iPod until uh, I had already been. My, my brother gave me one in return for babysitting his child um, <laughs> when I'd already been podcasting for like a year. So that's when I started listening to podcasts. Yeah. Um, but I think so the way that Ollie probably put it to you is. Um, I think about how to make something popular and then I think about how to make something good, which wouldn't be my instinct. I I think actually it's the wrong instinct in podcasting. I think you make it good, then popular or people are just like, that's a piece of shit. Why waste my time? But I was making it good and he was making it popular or at least good at the time. Like when we listen back now, we're just truly horrified. (laughs) (laughs) My early output is so bad. (laughs) But I think that the point is, how do you get an audience? And that was the question back then. And it is still the question now. Um, Are the answers the same now with all the people? I mean, when I started doing the Delicious podcast, there were very few food podcasts around. And it was good. Mm. And it was, you know, it was attached to a big delicious food magazine you know which had a good rep and a, and certainly a readership although the readership was older and they weren't listening to podcasts so we were bringing yeah. in a, a younger audience but as soon as Jessie Ware started Table Manners we were mm-hmm. knocked off the top spot and were never seen again um, ouch yeah I mean it's, it's it's fine but but the point is that celebrity will always win out and that kind of that taking over that sort of you know gentle sort of well, it's not even a gentle it's an overwhelming uh, assault isn't it by the celebs into that space driven possibly by the brands because that's where they know the money is coming from is how do you get an audience when the place is being dominated by celebrities well i don't think celebrities do always win though i remember spotify a couple of years ago paid amy schumer what a million dollars to do a podcast for them and nobody listened to it um or there have been some that some really high profile companies have made where sometimes it'll be a format that a successful indie show does, but they'll put a celebrity fronting it and it doesn't really do any business. Um, uh, so it's not necessarily, oh yeah, get a celebrity, you've got it made. And I think a lot of people listen to the podcast that hadn't heard of Jesse Ware. So. Yes, no, Jessie Ware's um, a fantastic example of somebody. And again, she comes from that yeah. TV background. She had that sensibility. She knew what she was doing. All the people yeah. I've talked to, my dad wrote Borno, they all come from that media sensibility. Ollie did yeah. too. You know, there's something about that the people yeah. who come from a storytelling background, they know how to pitch it. They know how the media works. Yeah. And, and that applied to podcasting really does tick the box. Well, the other thing is you've got to pitch it to the listener every single time. Um basically so you have to demonstrate to the listener why it will be a good use of their time because they have so much other internet to be entertained by so why would they stay if not so maybe there's something of that um i think in the case of something like jesse Ware, it's a different kind of leverage as well to get coverage in old media and old media does still make a difference in uh, getting podcast listeners um, but it doesn't necessarily translate if a show is made by the old media like my brother made a podcast for years for the times because they thought, oh, it will get us more subscribers. It didn't. It got the podcast subscribers and they don't translate to newspaper subscribers and vice versa in a lot of cases. 
the storytellers, the media sensibility is very much in Spotify, Luminary, all the places that are dominating the podcast stage. Uh, I wouldn't say that Luminary is. Tell me about Patreon, though. Tell me about creators getting money, uh, how that can grow. I love Ollie's mm. beer money. He told us a great story about that. Matt Hill told us about sponsorship in kind. There's all sorts of ways of, of uh, you know, scratching each other's backs. What about the possibility of podcasters making money for small podcasts? Yeah, well, we uh, monetized our back catalogue fairly early on, as Ollie probably told you. And the thing is, listeners have hitherto been quite generous because they're like, yeah, I had free entertainment. Um, if they paid us, I don't know, 20p for every episode they'd ever listened to, if all of the listeners did that, or even 10% did, we would be very rich. Um and I think when you put it in those terms, people are like, yeah, that wouldn't be that much. Paying people like five quid a year wouldn't be that much. But cumulatively, it would be a lot. Um, with Radiotopia, my show The Illusionist started because people were willing to put money into a Kickstarter to demonstrate that they wanted it. And Radiotopia is still, it's still listener supported. We have annual funding drives. And there's usually like some kind of rewards they can have, but most of them just want to translate their emotions into money and I was very uncomfortable asking them to do that the first time because I was like well no one's making me make a free podcast but um, they want to do that and now that I have some money which I didn't for the first eight years of podcasting um, I like redistributing it to other podcasts because it, it's just supporting what they make and knowing that all the money's going into this production and not like a big office building and masses of like layers of commissioners and people getting in the way of the creator. Like I think in big media organizations, the creator always seems to lose out first. Um, and we see that in podcasting as well. You know, the big money years have not resulted in more creators getting more opportunities or more money. It's turned them into employees and low power employees. And I find that very disagreeable and frustrating but I'm not in that system. The system I'm in is that if listeners give me money, it goes directly to make the th more of the thing that they like. And I think they like that. I think the problem comes in when, you know, they're just paying for too many things. And it really starts right out. I mean, my Patreon bill each month, I'm like, oh, God, wow. <laughs> I mean, I've never spent that on like any other form of entertainment every month. Um, but then, you know, if you're listening to something like Spotify and you're paying the subscription fee, you might think, oh, I've, I've done my bit, I've paid for these podcasts, but you haven't. Like, none of the podcasts you listen to on Spotify mm -hmm. are getting that money. The only podcasts making money off being on Spotify are the ones that Spotify has bought or funded with their capital. So that's the problem. It's like if the listener has emotionally done the financial supporting, but the podcast is not supported, I think that's what we're going to be contending with yeah. now. Brilliant. Last question. Are you going to be continuing to podcast yourself well it's my job and like i said it's never been fun <laughs> but um it's a lot easier to do now that there's a financial incentive um but the fact is it's a really good job still so i'll do it as long as it's possible to still reach people's ears and as long as i have something to say and if i don't then i need to stop Thanks for listening. You can buy the book How to Start and Grow a Podcast by me, Julie Smith, at any bookshop or go to the bookshop tab at juliesmith.com. And join me next week when I talk to the whole team behind British podcasting's most unlikely sensation. My dad wrote a porno. 